0: What keeps you up at night regarding the safety of the United States of America?
1: Right, so uh, my oath um, is uh, to protect uh, the Constitution and Americans from all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Um, and so uh, both uh, forms of, uh, of terrorism are of extraordinary concern to me. Um, we have a growing fear of uh, domestic uh, violent extremism um, and domestic terrorism. Um,
0: um, and Both of those um, uh, keep me up at night.
1: That was Attorney General Merrick Garland telling a House panel that the threat of violent domestic terrorism now ranks right up there with foreign terror attacks as one of the issues that keeps him up at night. It's not surprising, given the rash of domestic terror incidents from Charleston to Pittsburgh to El Paso in recent years, only to be topped off by the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. But how far is federal law enforcement under Garland's direction prepared to go to monitor and root out white supremacists and other violent domestic extremists? The New York Times recently reported that federal prosecutors in Washington investigating the January 6th insurrection devised an ambitious plan to target domestic groups suspected of being involved, including obtaining a search warrant for Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers. But the FBI rejected the request, arguing it would infringe on civil liberties guidelines, and they were backed up by senior Justice Department leaders. How far should the FBI go in targeting domestic extremists? We'll talk to Mike German, a former undercover FBI agent who worked on domestic terror cases, who is now a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the
0: United States. So help me God. So help me God. God. So help me God. So So help me God. So
1: help me God. So help me God. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative
2: Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
3: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, also a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So my thinking on
1: this uh, issue was really crystallized with that Really fascinating New York Times story last week in which here we have prosecutors trying to put together a conspiracy case for the January 6th assault, coming up with these aggressive plans for uh, search warrants involving the head of the Oath Keepers and other far right nationalist groups. And the FBI rejects it saying, no, we have limits on what we can do domestically for targeting people unless we have a predicate that they committed a crime. And um, I think it's really, uh, you know, we'd all like to know a lot more uh, what the argument for the prosecutors was and what the uh, FBI's pushback was. But this strikes me as an issue that is going to be pretty long lasting. And we're going to be talking about for some time. You know, in some ways it's counterintuitive because you sort of expect uh,
2: the FBI agents to be, you know, the hard charging, you know, law enforcement types who want to go out there and investigate and, and you know make arrests. Uh and the prosecutors are 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 the ones who sort of are gonna exercise judgment and and sort of restraint and and rein them in rein them exactly. in. But that's that's yeah. not what happened this time. And and the question is why? And it it raises a you know a, a bunch of interesting possibilities. One is, you know, the FBI obviously has its its history of scandals with violating People's civil liberties and particularly um, COINTELPRO, which we did on this. (laughs) Anybody wants
1: to know about that, go back and listen to our uh, podcast on uh, COINTELPRO about a month or so ago. Yeah, right. Investigating conduct that is.
2: Protected political activity or or speech, and so I'm sure that uh, you know it's possible that leaders at the FBI didn't want to be hauled up before congressional committees to be uh, grilled about another scandal. Um, There's another possibility, uh, which is that it's simply cultural at the FBI um, that there, and I think we're going to hear some of this from from Mike German, our guest, that there's there's been resistance to investigating white supremacist groups you know for a long time aggressively and the, the FBI is a still a largely white male uh, conservative organization and uh, they may see these kinds of cases differently and it, it's just not Part of the tradition in the same way, and and by the way, you know, so many of these F- current FBI agents uh, grew up in the FBI post 9-11 uh, when um, the entire agency was was really so focused around investigating and prosecuting and and preventing um, terrorist attacks from foreign terrorists like Al Qaeda and ISIS uh, and, and and that sort of thing. So. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, it could be either one of those. It could be some combination of, of, of those. But as you say, Mike, I think this is a, a theme uh, that will be um, unfolding uh, for a long time as the Justice Department makes these kinds of uh, cases a, a priority.
3: I think we're going to be seeing stories similar to this for a long time as we grapple with the aftermath of, of January 6th. There's such a swirl of conflicting impulses and ideas surrounding how we deal with it. Uh, You know, on the one hand, within the FBI and within the Pentagon and within the Department of Homeland Security, a lot of concerns that there's a lack of concern about white supremacy, um, that in fact, they've been targeted for infiltration or for um, sympathy with white supremacists. Um, By the same token, civil rights groups are really loathe and worried about excessive surveillance and government monitoring of thought, even if it's the thoughts and expressed ideas of white supremacists. There's no clarity about this issue. And I think for for months, years now, we're going to see these kind of conflicts.
2: And in some ways, Mike German, it'll be interesting to talk to him because he may sort of personify some of those contradictions, because on the one hand, you know, he has been working. He he investigated uh, white supremacists uh, during his career at the FBI. On the other hand, um, you know, he is a staunch uh, civil libertarian who's been uh, I think concerned about investigations that that could get into areas of you know
1: speech and thought um and so Uh, So that should be fascinating. Right. right. But to me, it's a reminder that um, inside the Justice Department, um, just as inside news organizations, uh, people can look at the same set of facts and come away with very different conclusions uh, as to what the proper steps uh, to take. I mean, you know, to me, it's fascinating, you know, as you point out, usually it's the prosecutors who are putting the slow brakes on aggressive FBI agents. Here was the FBI that was putting a slow brakes on prosecutors, but the Garland Justice Department backed up the FBI's position. Can you imagine... If it was the Bar Justice Department that rejected what federal prosecutors in Washington wanted to do to go after the white supremacist insurrectionists on January 6th, and what a furor that would have been, um, this story by uh, Katie Benner from the New York Times ran inside the Times. If it was under the Bar Justice Department, it would have been above the fold and blaring headlines. So maybe yeah. just
3: like only Nixon could go to China, maybe only Merrick Garland can, can uphold
1: Sybil liberties for white supremacists. Exactly. Right. right. Well, we'll see, because clearly, uh, you know, prosecuting these cases and cracking down on these uh, on these groups is a high priority, if not the top priority of the Garland Justice Department. Uh, Yeah.
2: And and the energy that you're seeing for th- these kinds of in- investigations grows out of the attack on uh, on the Capitol um, in, on, on January 6th. Um, that's what kind of gave these investigations kind of the jet fuel uh, that we're seeing now. Um, but it also is having a different kind of energy uh, within the Republican Party that we're seeing play <laughs> out. Yeah. So speaking about uh, Liz Cheney, The number three Republican in the House um, who voted to impeach uh, Donald Trump talked about how he had, you know, betrayed the Constitution um, and has not uh, backed down, even though there was a move uh, to uh, remove her from her leadership position, which she survived. Uh, But she has continued and um, it looks like she's in big trouble again. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was caught in a hot mic moment uh, speaking to uh, Fox News, to Steve Ducey at Fox News, saying that he thinks that Cheney's, quote, got real problems. And I've had it with her and also points out that uh, a lot of people have lost confidence and uh, someone is going to bring a motion uh, that would be a motion to once again vote to remove her from her leadership uh, position. So, Pretty extraordinary drama playing out within the top ranks of the Republican Party. My sense is, by and large, you know, her criticism and, and it's been unvarnished has been of what President Trump, what former President Trump did, um, you know, with the you know with the election and this you know whole stop the steal business. Um, And then, of course, in her view, and I think in most people's view, uh, sparking the attack on the Congress on on January 6th. But I noticed that um, in response to uh, this hot mic moment uh, with uh, Kevin McCarthy, her spokesman is not just talking about Donald Trump. The quote is – this is about whether the Republican Party is going to perpetuate lies about the two thousand and twenty election and attempt to whitewash what happened on January six. The Republican Party writ large, and that was according to uh, jeremy adler uh, cheney 's uh, uh, spokesman i think it 's interesting because you know there are also rumors that she 's got you know real political ambitions beyond. Congress. She's at this point. I don't think there's much chance she's going to be Speaker of the House anytime soon. But some people think she might run for president, and she is. I think doing something interesting, maybe politically suicidal. But she is. um, Looks like she's staking out a position very far away from where this Republican Party is right now, and is kind of looking down the road, thinking that uh, she might uh, getting ahead now of where the Republican Party at some point may may go. I don't know.
1: Yeah, her tweet uh, on uh, on Monday was the 2020 presidential election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading in caps. The big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. A principled position for Liz Cheney, but I don't see how that uh, lays the groundwork for a Republican presidential run uh, in 2024. Not in
3: 2024. I think yeah. I think right now the goal is to survive a primary in 2022 for her. So yeah. once once she gets through that she can she can but you know one thing that is interesting is is the the reporting does seem to indicate that she has become a pretty big fundraiser off of this. So so interestingly enough, you know her her kind of role is this uh counterpoint or voice of conscience within the Republican Party is not uh, without its benefits to her. So well, okay. I would- every
1: everything to do with Trump and the election is uh, grounds for uh, uh, fundraising these days. I mean, I get daily in my email inbox fundraising pitches from the left and the right, all I built know. about Trump and the big lie, depending on which side you're yeah. on.
3: I can't unsubscribe to them fast enough. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> mean, the
1: one that really uh, cause me to crack up laughing are the ones from the left um, asking me to sign a petition to Merrick Garland at the Justice Department demanding that he prosecute Donald Trump and everybody connected with him. And, um, you know, is that how is that how it works? You don't think that works? Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) If we ever get Merrick Garland uh, as a guest on the show, I want to ask him, are these people trying to raise money on petitions to you wasting their time? I'd love to get him on the record uh, for that to say he will pay no attention to such a petition. Yeah. Um, Anyway, um, look, a lot to talk about. Oh, we had one other uh, item we wanted to mention before we get to Mike German. And that is the double reversal. Uh, Is this the second or third reversal by the uh, uh, Biden Uh,
2: administration on refugees after first promising to allow in 62,000 refugees? refugees. Uh, then they reneged on that and said they were going to maintain the 15000 uh, cap that Trump had imposed. Uh, then there was huge blowback uh, from, from Democrats, from the uh, refugee advocate community. Uh, they said there was some confusion around this and they were, uh, you know, stay tuned, basically. Although Jen Psaki, the White House uh, press secretary, said, but don't expect it to go up to 62,000. That's not going to happen. And here we are. Uh, they just announced that uh, it is going to be 62,000. It's just another example uh, of how the Biden administration uh, and, and Biden himself, because, you know, all the reporting suggested on the re- refugee issue, he made that decision, you know, even over the objections of some of his closest advisors. Uh, but how they've been just tied up in knots over immigration and refugees and um,
1: third third position in uh, 105 days. Right. Yeah. On on how many refugees should be let in the country. Um, All right. Well, we will uh, be uh, tracking that to see if there are more positions for the Biden administration on this issue. And in the meantime, we've got Mike German, former FBI agent. So let's get to it. Uh, we now have with us Mike German, a former FBI uh, undercover agent, now a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. Mike, welcome to Skullduggery.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, a lot we want to talk about uh, today about the threat of uh, domestic uh, terrorism, uh, white supremacy, other extremist groups and what we do about it. but. We really wanted to have you as a former undercover agent who used to investigate these groups uh, to get your perspective. So I just want to start out asking you a little bit about your own experiences as an FBI agent targeting white supremacists and other uh, violent domestic extremist groups. Tell us what you did and who you investigated.
0: Sure. I I was a, a fairly young FBI agent. In Los Angeles, California in 1992, uh, when the civil unrest following the police beating of Rodney King occurred, and from informants within the movement, the FBI was hearing that groups were arming up, hoping for a second set of riots that they could better exploit to initiate a race war, uh, which might sound crazy now, but you know, with, with all the concern over the violence at protests over the last couple of years they're nothing like the violence that uh, was experienced then and this idea that they could create huge problems in los angeles was was significant so they sent me undercover and i spent about 14 months working mostly to uh, obtain get into their uh, illegal weapons trafficking network and Across so who's mixed. the
1: they here? Who are the groups? Uh, and and who did you pose as? And how did you pass yourself off as a uh, white supremacist? Uh,
0: so I didn't pa- pass myself off as a white supremacist. I passed myself off as an effective criminal uh, who was willing to be recruited into white supremacist groups. And there were a number of different groups that were operating them then under banners of above ground organizations from the Aryan Nations to the White Aryan Resistance to the Church of the Creator. Uh, There were a number of these different groups, all of whom were somewhat in conflict with one another, even though they had a shared uh, interest in initiating a race war. Uh, But what I found, and we learned through informants before I got there, was that if you were part of one group, you couldn't work with the other groups. The other groups wouldn't work with you. So I maintained myself as kind of a free agent willing to help any of the groups that allowed me to uh, get in with the criminal element. And also what I learned was that the above ground ideological part of the movement was an arm's length distance from the people who were committing crimes. And that was both tactical. They used something called, that they called leaderless resistance that told them, instructed them, to not be associated with above-ground groups if you're going to uh, engage in acts of violence, Uh, but also because the above-ground groups, you know, if you're writing books and publishing newsletters and doing radio shows, that tends to be because you think those are effective methods.
1: So you you were offering to what? Buy guns? uh, Conduct armed robberies? Do what? for these groups? And just as a corollary, uh, did you ever have concerns that they were, had suspicions about you? Uh,
0: so uh, basically the, the way I was invited in by an informant who vouched for me as a very effective criminal who was involved in armed robberies and other violent crimes. And so, you know, they were trying to recruit me. So, you know, they would ask me, well, you know, would you do this? Would you do that? Would you, would you do that? And, and I would say, yes, I can do that. <laughs> so for each group, it was a little bit different. And it was kind of fortunate because they had security measures where they compartmentalized information. So, you know, we could be part of a group, the four of us involved in one conspiracy. But two of us are involved in a different conspiracy that the other two don't know about. And so I could have multiple conspiracies among a group of people and be fairly confident that they weren't going to share information that might conflict with what I'd been telling somebody else because we were involved in criminal activity together.
3: Mike, is there is there a through line from what you learned with these groups in the in the nineties, it's a different set of groups nowadays. It's we talk about you know proud boys, oath keepers, three percenters. Is there a through line between what you learned then and the way they're behaving now?
0: Certainly, and and I think understanding that through line, you know, unfortunately, most of the people who who are you know quote unquote terrorism experts and uh, commenters and journalists who write about this only started looking at terrorism after nine eleven and. Bought into the George Bush narrative that this was a new kind of thing, and we couldn't learn anything from history, and didn't realize that we had a hundred years of history fighting white supremacist terrorism in the United States that we could have learned from. So, you know, I I was undercover with with neo nazi skinhead groups in the early nineteen nineties, and then undercover again with far right militias in the late nineteen nineties. And basically, what that was was an effort to rebrand what they were doing. So you know, these groups know that their ideas are not necessarily popular with the public, so they have to continually try to find ways to reach a broader audience. And what some of the leaders of the white supremacist movement in the early 90s were talking about when the skinhead movement was big, that that had reached its peak. You know, that was great because it encouraged a bunch of young men who were very angry and very willing to use violence to come into the movement. But now we had to change our tactics to reach out to a broader audience. And we did that by putting down the Nazi flags and picking up American flags and not call ourselves Nazis and instead call ourselves patriots. So that kind of was the ideological impetus behind groups transitioning into, into militia groups in the 1990s. And if you talk to a lot of researchers, they'll say, you know, white supremacy and Nazism was real popular in the early 90s. But then that went out of style where it was really the same people. They were just calling themselves something different. And part of that also was the media. Right. And Tim McVeigh, whose Oklahoma City bombing in, in the mid 90s, became the biggest story of that period for good reason. Uh, for whatever reason, the media attributed his involvement in militia groups as more. Dominant than his involvement in white supremacist groups, even though he was involved in both because there was so much overlap between them. But because the media portrayed him as an example of the dangerousness of the militia, it became vogue within the movement to associate yourself with that level of violence by calling yourself a militia rather than the old neo Nazis who didn't really do anything anymore. So, you know, you have to understand how this underground element interacts with the rest of society, right? It's not something just on the margins of society, it's marveled throughout our society. And, and that's what really isn't understood. So what they're doing today is really no difference where they try to rebrand, find new messages, you know, find ways to appeal to a broader audience. The only thing was different was when Trump uh, started running for president, and was making openly racist statements that seemed to appeal to these groups. And if you look back at the reporting, you know, all of a sudden, reporters were sticking microphones in front of, you know, former Klansmen and others, uh, asking their opinion of a national political race. And at first, they were saying, "We know Donald Trump isn't one of us. You know, he's he's got a Jewish son-in-law. And he's a supporter of Israel. You know, this isn't part of us. He's just trying to exploit us." But very quickly. You could see the light bulb go out over their head where they said, "Wait a minute, I got a mainstream news reporter asking me to comment about a national political race." Absolutely, we're Trump fans. So they the media brought them into the normal political discourse in the United States that gave them a dangerous access because, you know, many of us in in the United States look at their ideas and find them abhorrent. But there are plenty of people who don't find them abhorrent and particularly post 9/11 where you had the military and law enforcement agencies inundated with anti-muslim training materials counterterrorism training materials you know on certain issues basically what this did was put them in the same on the same side on important issues so on counterterrorism you had white supremacists who were anti-muslim because of their racism on the same side of the issues with counter-terrorists who were anti-Muslim because that's what they were being trained was essential counterterrorism. Likewise, the, the nativism that came out of the, the focus on securing the southern border, you know, the militias all of a sudden started calling themselves border militias and were now working in tandem with border Patrol and other groups. They were no longer antithetical to the federal government, they were assisting and a proxy for the federal government. So it it was a way of, of unfortunately, mainstreaming a lot of these racist and nativist ideas.
2: So, Mike, I want to get I want to talk about this uh, sense that I get that um, uh, that there's been kind of a persistent resistance to this idea that these uh, white supremacists and far right extremist groups are as dangerous as foreign terrorists, for example, and so the FBI now says that uh, that white supremacist groups, far right extremist groups, are uh, represent the most uh, dangerous domestic terrorist threat in the country. Um, is that actually a new thing, or is that a new acknowledgement of that reality? In other words, has this been true sort of all along, or is it just that there's been a sort of a sh- shift in thinking? for you know, whatever the
0: reasons are? Uh, it's, it's been true all along. If you look at who, what groups are killing people, white supremacists and far-right militants have persistently killed people in the United States going back to the creation of our country, right? This isn't something new. The levels of violence are persistent. You know, again, when you look at the research, it tends to spike and go down, but what they're really measuring is our attention to it. Right. So you'll see a huge spike around 2008, 2009 when reporters were covering white supremacists because Barack Obama, the first black president, was elected. So I I would always say to the reporters, you know, do you think people who weren't racist yesterday decided today would be a good day to become racist or do you think we're importing racists from elsewhere? You know, it's just that people were more willing to talk about their racism in these periods and the media was covering them because the police were investigating these crimes, right? Because,
2: it, it, yeah, it's interesting if you do a sort of you – know, we'll, we'll get into the issue of these groups penetrating uh, law enforcement, which you've done a lot of work on. Um, but it's, it's an interesting kind of thought exercise. If Americans thought that federal law enforcement was filled with members of al-Qaeda, for example, imagine what the reaction would be.
0: Right. So Not even filled with if there were two or three.
2: Right, right. So why is it that this problem of extremists and and racists and white supremacists having penetrated federal law enforcement, why has that not, you know, kind of captured the imagination?
0: Um, I I think because it has been a part of our society for so long that we don't see it as, as a national security threat, right? If it was a national security threat, we wouldn't have had a nation in the 1960s, when the open involvement of law enforcement in the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups was far more prevalent than it is today. But again, it was never eradicated from our society, right? And and while Donald Trump brought out a bullhorn uh, to make his overt support of these groups clear, other politicians through the decades had, had engaged in that dog whistle politics to racist, for decades, right? I mean, it wasn't something that, that wasn't talked about. We all knew what it was. And of course, if you have elected members of government talking this way, you can expect that's going to be in other aspects of government. And because law enforcement are the ones charged with enforcing laws that are still infected by this white supremacy, of course, they tend to be the point of the spear where that activity is most pronounced.
1: So the question is, what do we do about it? Now, you were a bureau agent who became a bureau critic and specifically over uh, what you argued was the FBI's overreach and violation of civil liberties in the targeting of radical Muslims uh, in the United States. the question is, um, we now have this other threat that we've had all along, as you point out. How do we navigate identifying domestic white supremacists who are uh, planning attacks from taking the kind of steps that you criticize the FBI for taking when it was trying to stop radical Muslims from launching attacks?
0: Um So I I think first we have to acknowledge what is verifiably true, right? That there is this narrative out there that there aren't enough uh, statutes or legal authority to work domestic terrorism, right? We've heard this mantra over and over again. There is no domestic terrorism law. Patently untrue. There is an entire chapter in the U.S. criminal code called terrorism that lists 57 federal crimes of terrorism. If you read those laws, 51 of the 57 don't have any international aspect and are routinely applied in domestic terrorism cases. So there are actually 51 federal crimes of terrorism that apply to domestic terrorism. So this whole narrative is false. Moreover, if you look at Justice Department records, prosecution records, Over the past 10 years, they've prosecuted twice as many domestic terrorism cases as international terrorism cases. So the idea that there's some lack of authority is just simply false. The problem is they use that authority most aggressively against groups they have uh, a political opposition to. So environmental protesters, Black Lives Matter marchers, anti-Trump protesters at the J-20, uh, the disrupt J20 protest, you know, these groups that are far less violent for, for about a decade, the FBI publicly said that eco terrorism was the number one domestic threat, even though there's not a single homicide related to environmental activism in the US. So this was a choice that the Justice Department made to target groups that were less violent while ignoring groups that were more violent. So if a white supremacist murdered somebody, the FBI could call that an act of domestic terrorism, and then it would go in the counterterrorism program, the top priority, lots of resources, even though it was deprioritized within the domestic terrorism program, which is subordinated to the international terrorism. But
1: regardless of labels, what specifically should the FBI be doing that it's not doing right now?
0: Focusing on the violence. These groups. And this is the big difference between the groups. White supremacists and far-right militants are persistently committing violence in communities all across the country. That violence is often not investigated. It's not tracked. The FBI today can't tell you how many people white supremacists killed last year or the year before that or the year before that because they don't even track the homicides these groups engage in. So... The problem was when they were prioritizing uh, Muslim terrorist groups, knock on wood, we're a fortunate country that doesn't face a lot of terrorism in this country. There wasn't much for them to investigate. So they had to manufacture statistical accomplishments. Right. Finding some. Misguided people online saying something really stupid that more normal people wouldn't say publicly and roping them into some kind of terrorist operation when they actually had no connection, to any terrorist group or capability of doing anything on their own or selectively prosecuting people who they believe expressed radical ideas for some minor violations, false statements on a insurance case or some other thing, and then calling them terrorism in the white supremacist and far-right militia context, there's plenty of violence to investigate. Investigate the violence. Make the cases that tie the violence together like we did in my cases in the 1990s. Investigate the criminal activity they're actually involved in. You don't have to manufacture cases with these groups. They engage in violence already. Is it
2: a, is it a, is it a problem uh, that in the foreign context – the U.S. government will identify specific groups as terrorist organizations. We don't do that in the domestic uh, context. And so I, I wonder if just in terms of uh, you know, how we think about going after these, these groups and individuals, if, that is, um, uh, if that's a problem, if that's in some ways a disincentive to go, going after these individuals as
0: terrorists. So, uh, so again – the FBI. I worked the cases I worked in the 1990s were on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. We investigated them as terrorists. So again, there's no lack of domestic terrorism authorities. What
2: about material support? Right. material support.
0: I'll get I'll get to your okay. point. So I think designating domestic terrorist groups and banning their their support would be just as ineffective as it has been in the international terrorism context. Right we talk about this as if that's been some magic bullet that helped get rid of these entities. Hamas was put on a list in 1997. I think they're doing okay, right? You know, this idea that that methodology has been effective, Al-Qaeda was put on in 1999. They were still able to accomplish some pretty significant attacks since then and are actually bigger today than they were there. It's been an ineffective methodology. So why you would want to import that into the United States makes no sense. And that's part of the problem is we're not actually looking at the performance of these groups. What that did allow is the FBI to target people who weren't terrorists, as terrorists. That was the problem, as as Mike suggested. That's the kind of thing that I was complaining about. You know, when, when the FBI manufactured these elaborate sting operations, They weren't stopping al-Qaeda or ISIS. These people had no no connection to al-Qaeda or (laughs) ISIS. All they were doing was manufacturing a statistical accomplishment that they could claim when they went to Congress. Look how successful our program is. All it did was help al-Qaeda and ISIS by making it appear that they had people in the United States when they did not. So so it's a a really bad methodology in the first place. And and the simplest thing, one of the things you have to understand about these white supremacist groups, and Mike, you asked me this question from the beginning, what groups did I infiltrate? They change names like we change clothes. There's four of us in a group. We're going to call ourselves the, you know, the online neo-Nazis. And tomorrow, one of us leaves and she takes that name with her. And now we have to call ourselves something different or we get in a fight or we split or two of us are also involved in this separate conspiracy and we call ourselves something different, even though we're engaged with the four. And there's actually a bigger group of 10 and a bigger group of 30 that have different names. So, you, you know, much like what happened after the Unite the Right rally in, in Charlottesville and the negative attention that that the groups got, many of them changed their names. Right. Because they want to avoid the controversy and they simply change their name. So as soon as you designated a group, they would just change their name.
3: So, Mike, in the in the last uh, three or four months, two major agencies in the federal government have announced initiatives to try to figure out whether or not. The call is coming from inside the House. Uh, They are concerned that uh, white supremacist groups or extremist organizations have gotten a foothold in the organization. Last week, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, announced an effort to look into it. Uh, We know the Pentagon did a stand down to do this. I guess I really kind of have two questions. So first, how much of a problem is this really within DHS or the Pentagon? How infiltrated, if that's the right word, are they? And second of all, do these initiatives really stand any chance of attacking the problem?
0: Uh, So I I was doing this work again back in the 1990s when uh, two Fort Bragg soldiers killed a black couple to get there white supremacist skinhead tattoo. And there was a, a, an effort by the Department of Defense at that time to identify the racists within, within the force. And I, I think they found like 20 people and said, okay, we're done. Again, white supremacy was foundational to the creation of our country and it still infects every aspect of our country. So as long as the military is recruiting from the general population and law enforcement is recruiting from general population, they are going to be pulling these people in, people with attitudes like this. OK,
3: but you've you've reported that the white supremacist groups are are targeting uh, law enforcement. So not just it's not just a kind of a casual people are being pulled in. It's a it's a, a an aggressive effort, if you will, to recruit.
0: C- certainly. And any militant group uh, is going to look for opportunities to get the kind of training that the U.S. military Uh, does the best at. So it's a natural fit. Uh, It's also naturally attractive to people who tend to be authoritarian in the first place. So, you know, there's a natural flow in that direction. And it can be overstated because it's not just that these extremist groups are trying to push their members into the military and law enforcement. It's that many in the military and law enforcement this appeals to. You know, they already have an authoritarian mindset. They're inundated with racist training materials. So, you know, again, especially post 9-11, when it became okay to say openly anti-Muslim things in law enforcement and, and military training, you know, that tended to put these groups together on issues. And again, the nativism at the and the way we were reacting to our Southern border and immigration, put these groups together, and there's plenty of reporting on it. You know, this isn't something that, that should have shocked anybody. You know, in my report, I was careful to point out that this is something that the FBI itself was warning its agents. I got these warnings as an FBI agent going undercover in this the group that, hey, you know, the Joint Terrorism Task Force team I was working with, we were told, even though it included state and local law enforcement, you have to be very careful about who you share information about this operation with in law enforcement because they have sympathizers
2: so once you've identified people in these law enforcement agencies who hold extremist uh, and racist views but maybe haven't acted on them haven't committed crimes how do you root them out what is the legal what is the legal landscape uh, look like to what extent does the first amendment and you know sort of free speech protect them and is it difficult? I mean, in terms of, you know, uh, going up against unions or, you know, litigation. I mean, tell us a little bit about 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 that aspect of this story.
0: Uh, so the, the Supreme Court has made clear through, through a number of cases that, you know, while you do have a right to, to say what you want and to associate uh, with who you want, you don't have a right to be a police officer. <laughs> Uh, so government agents, government officials do have some limitations on what they can say publicly if it harms the mission of the government agency that they're they're working for. And they have determined that association with, with racist groups, open affiliation with racist groups is something that harms the mission of law enforcement. So any number of cases have, have found that it's justifiable to terminate somebody who is engaging in that way. But it's true that there is a spectrum of behavior, right, that there's something very different from somebody engaging in racist violence and being a member of the Ku Klux Klan and, and publicly avowing that support from somebody who might have retweeted a racist joke. Right. The
2: well, what if let me ask you this, Mike, what, what if you've got a Border Patrol person who expresses the view we got to get these immigrants out of this country. These immigrants are ruining our country. That is nativist. Uh, it may be racist. Um, his job is to protect the border uh, and to keep those people, though, whoever <laughs> those people who are violating the law, out of the country. So, do you worry about a slippery slope here um, in terms of of, of speech um, and where the lines ought to be?
0: So, you know, you'll hear that by elected representatives of our government and high level people, including the former president of the United States, right? I I mean, this is rhetoric that, again, shows how deeply embedded in our society this uh, intolerance is. So what's important for law enforcement agencies to do is to focus on misbehavior, right? It's fascinating that after it came out that some Capitol Police officers seemed to be assisting the rioters or working in tandem with them at some points, uh, all of a sudden, a couple of days later, there were reports about how black Capitol Police officers had been reporting racism within the institution for decades, right? But we put that in a separate category, right? It's not like when a racial discrimination complaint is, is lodged in a police agency, they go, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity to get rid of a racist. No, that's something that they give to EEO and and legal to defend against. We are going to defend ourselves against this claim of racial discrimination. That's not that's separate. And, you know, oh, how how difficult it will be to find the racists among us when if they focus on racist behavior, it's easy. All you have to do is ask the police officers who work with these racist officers or even more so ask the community. The community they police know who the racists are. They make complaints about them. Those complaints, again, go into the pile of things we're defending against rather than recognizing this is evidence of racist misconduct that we can use to clean up our agency. So it's not as hard as they're suggesting if they focus on behavior. If there is some law enforcement officer who is racist in his heart and his mind, but you could never tell that by the way they behave towards their colleagues on the job or the public at large. I'm not worried about that guy. Let that guy go home and stew in his racism and focus on the people who are actually discriminating against their fellow officers and and using racist violence or racist uh, misconduct towards the community.
1: OK, let's take a real life example on the civil liberties front. The New York Times reported last week that federal prosecutors in Washington who are investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol presented this uh, ambitious plan to identify possible co-conspirators, and they wanted a search warrant to be uh, for Stuart Rhodes, who is the leader of the Oath keepers one of the militia groups whose members have uh, definitely participated in the attacks
3: and a yale law school grad for the record.
1: And, a, and a yale law school grad yeah so the fbi rejected that, saying, no, they did not have evidence that Rhodes himself participated in the attacks. And the FBI cannot target the leader of a group or groups per se, unless there is a predicate that they actually participated in the violence on January 6th. And the FBI's resistance to uh, the search warrant that the prosecutors wanted they were backed up by senior officials in the Justice Department. Who's right there? Was the FBI and senior officials at the Justice Department right or the prosecutors who wanted a more aggressive approach to finding the possible co-conspirators in January 6th?
0: I, I, I don't know all the details of those circumstances, so I, I don't want to necessarily comment on... But
1: based on what is publicly known.
0: But but this, this has been a longstanding problem within... The FBI is that they manufacture obstacles to investigating white supremacist groups that they don't in other contexts. Right. So if J- January 6th, the assault on the Capitol by groups affiliated with any person. That is a predicating event. That was criminal activity. Even
1: if you have no, but let's take Mr. Rhodes. They did not have anything that tied Rhodes to being at the attack or directing anybody at the attack. So you're saying, but it's it's okay to go after that guy because he had associations with some of these other folks.
0: So again, I want to take it out of the context that that I don't have all the details on, so I can't make an informed comment about that specific case. But again. I didn't have proof that every single person I would run into in my undercover operation was already engaged in some kind of criminal activity. That's what the investigation is about. The FBI's guidelines are printed. We don't have to believe what they say. You can read them. The, The attorney general guidelines create an authority to investigate people through assessments based on no factual predicate. None.
1: So how do you explain the Garland Justice Department, which clearly wants to make domestic terrorism a priority, Again, rejecting what the prosecutors wanted to
0: do? I don't know all the details there, and I don't think what's been reported it probably covers all the details. So I don't want to say something about that search warrant. But it has been true for decades that FBI managers place unreasonable obstacles That, that impede agents who want to work good cases instead, including my cases, right? Those were only successful because they were very effective and very dedicated FBI case agents who were willing to jump over every obstacle that was put in front of them. But more often the the case is that they, they are able to impede investigations based on these false assertions of requirements that don't exist in any other context.
1: So just just because uh, you've now inspired my thinking about another very well-publicized search warrant last week uh, for Rudy Giuliani's uh, home office and computer, are you saying that the fact that the feds got that does not necessarily mean they had evidence that Rudy Giuliani specifically committed a crime?
0: I, I haven't read that search warrant, and I don't know what their probable cause, but, but yes— you know, the FBI served search warrants on, on banks and, and and Internet platforms. They're not suggesting that they committed the crime.
1: Well, in Rudy Giuliani's case, it was widely seen as an aggressive move suggesting he's in some kind of legal trouble. But you're making the case that, well, maybe not. They just needed evidence that they could use to go against well, other Mike, people. There's,
3: there's, there is additional evidence that Giuliani is the target of investigation. Yeah.
0: And there may be there may be. Things in that search warrant. I'm not talking about specific cases. I'm saying the way the law works. All the judges determining is there probable cause to believe that the evidence that the FBI is looking for is in that place or held by that person. Yeah, uh,
2: Mike. Is it in, in the context of uh, Stuart Rhodes and the the um, anybody who uh, was in in any way in the orbit of the January sixth attack? Um, is it that the FBI and in their trainings that may be reflected in the guidelines that there is a special sensitivity for, for Americans around anything that could be protected by speech uh, as opposed to other kinds of criminal investigations? I mean, you know, say, involving foreign terrorists. I mean, what, what is it? Wh- why do you think uh, the FBI has been so resistant to, and I'm talking about the FBI in particular, uh, to investigating these kinds of cases, because I don't have the sense that the FBI is an, is an institution uh, that is filled with uh, white supremacists. I mean, don't isn't the well, FBI
0: the, F- the FBI is still overwhelmingly white and male? And that you, is
2: true. Uh, that is true.
0: If you look at the political opinions of white males in this country, yeah, okay. you get a better point taken. Idea, you know, plus law enforcement tends to track a more uh, track a more conservative uh, person to it, so. Certainly, bias plays a huge role in it, particularly political bias, right? I mean, it's fascinating how the FBI brings up all these obstacles to investigating white supremacists who actually engaged in violence when they prioritized investigations of environmentalists who never engaged in violence, right, (laughs) of anti-war activists who never engaged in violence, Standing Rock water protectors who never engaged in violence and are still being harassed by the FBI years after the protests they were involved in. Right. The the history of the FBI's attacking groups that are engaged in political advocacy. You don't have to go back to the 1960s. You know, it's well documented all throughout. The FBI created a a nationwide investigation called Iron Fist to track Black Lives Matter activists. Right. There is no. Commensurate investigation of violent white supremacists. Literally, we don't know how many people they kill each year because we don't even track the violence that they commit. So there's a bunch of different explanations. I mean, part of it is that when you empower a law enforcement agency to think of itself as a domestic intelligence agency and not focus on evidence of criminality, but instead the potential threat. Well, who's the bigger potential threat to a white male? White supremacist gangs aren't marauding through his community, right? He doesn't see white supremacist violence as a threat because it's not a threat to him and his family and his community. What he sees as a threat are these crazy environmentalists who are talking about changing the system and, you know, his his neighbor down the street is the CEO of an oil and gas company and, you know, is concerned about these protesters that are, are making noise in front of his building all day. So that becomes the bigger threat. And so that's where the resources go. And you can look at any number of those investigations and what do they focus on? Social media. I mean, it's this strange thing where where the head of the FBI's counterintelligence testified before Congress that they can't look at somebody's public social media Until they have a criminal predicate. First of all, these groups are very violent. You can get criminal predicates pretty easily. But second of all, it's simply not true. It's demonstrably not true by reading the FBI guidelines, but also looking at FBI cases. At the same time, they were talking about a November 5th uh, warning from the Norfolk FBI. What was that warning about? About something people were talking about on social media. So how can you say we're not allowed to look at social media when here's the report of agents looking at social media. I mean, it's absolute nonsense, but it keeps getting reported as true.
1: Do we want the FBI to be spending their time trolling through social media to identify people who might have
0: extremist beliefs? Of course not. They, they would It'd be a complete waste of time, right? You don't have to go to parlor or some deep, dark web. Go, go to the Washington Post comments section and you'll see calls for genocide right I mean it's like it's nonsense it's it, but this was the post 911 counterterrorism idea that you know they resurrected this dead idea that J Edgar Hoover had that we don't target violent people we should target the radicals who inspire them right that radicalization theory was resurrected after 9/11 even though empirical research has discredited, dozens of times. But that whole concept is that people with the bad ideas are the bigger problem, and that's where the resources should go, because that empowers the government, right? You need a big government to do all that that scouring of the internet, where if you just focus on the violence, you can be much more effective in reducing violence.
3: Yeah, it it does seem like over the course of the last few weeks, there there seems to be a ratcheting up of a variety of agencies engaging in, let's call it a social media dragnet.
2: Including the Postal Service.
3: Including the Postal Service, which, you know, Yahoo broke the news on and everyone just, you know, sort of gasped at the idea that the Postal Service is monitoring social media. There's a report that just came out saying that the Department of Homeland Security is looking at outside third-party groups that they might hire in order to kind of uh, monitor social media, to kind of see what white supremacist groups are thinking. There's anxiety about the fact that uh, law enforcement agencies were caught flat-footed or that the intelligence was so bad about the level of the threat before January 6th. And so it it really does seem like there is an increasing focus on idea monitoring rather than violence or activity monitoring. Is that something that you see?
0: Yeah, and it's something I'm troubled by, both because it will unnecessarily focus resources on people who haven't done anything wrong uh and because it's a misdiagnosis of the problem right you didn't need to be tracking social media i don't follow any of their parlor accounts any of the white supremacists far right militants i you know i got a belly full of what they have to say a long time ago i don't need to hear what they're saying all i do is follow the reports of actual violence they committed many of the people who committed violence At the January 6th event had committed violence at previous protests. This wasn't something that was unprecedented. In fact, far right militants attacked the Oregon state legislature, breaching the doors and windows, fighting with police officers, beating up journalists two weeks before the attack on the Capitol. Some of the people there were were arrested at the Capitol. So the idea that this somehow came out of nowhere and only was being discussed on on some obscure social media websites is simply false. This was happening in public. It was planned in public. It was escalating in public. And many of the people who had been part of it all along were at the cap.
3: So the Postal Service monitoring social media.
0: All, all it's going to do is create a ton of false alarms that dull law enforcement response, right? We have alarms in every one of our buildings. Uh, that you can pull if there's a fire. But if you pull that when there's not a fire, there's actually a criminal penalty associated with that because we know it dulls response. But in counterterrorism, we have see something, say something, report anything. This radicalization theory says that people saying bad things are the ones you have to stop, and it draws all the resources away from focus on actual violence. Focus on the violence that solves the First Amendment issue. It focuses the resources where they need to be.
1: Well, uh, Mike uh, German, I want to thank you uh, for an illuminating discussion. And it's uh, certainly an issue that we're going to be following closely, which means we'll almost certainly be back to you on this.
0: I I hope so. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks Thanks a lot,
1: Mike. It was great. Take care.